0: This morning comes from uh, Matthew 26, verses 30 to 56. So please stand with me as we read God's word. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled then all the disciples left him and fled this is god's word
1: feels a, a bit odd perhaps to sing a, a great hymn of passion week in the fall while the snow is falling outside but how fitting a song uh, for the passage before us this morning in our journey through the gospel of matthew this past week was the end of the quarter For uh, our two oldest kids and the school they attend. Which meant that my wife spent much of the week uh, helping Joshua study for about four or five tests. Uh, Now, on the grand scale of things, a a quarter-end test in fourth grade is not particularly influential on one's overall academic career. uh, Though my son might argue with that point at times. But imagine coming to the end of your high school career or your college degree or maybe sitting for your comprehensive exam in grad school and as the test is handed out, the teacher says to you, every single one of you is going to fail this exam. All of the time and effort you've spent the last three or four years Studying all the classes you've attended, all the books that you've read. When you hand in your test and walk out of this room today, you will have failed your program. That feeling is perhaps a bit uh, what Jesus' after dinner conversation was like in Matthew 26. When he says to his disciples in verse 31, you will all fall away because of me this night. Three years of following Jesus, of learning his teaching, of watching him do these incredible signs, of even participating in some of those signs and wonders. Three years of that, and all of that preparation will be tested this night, and not a single one of you will pass. You look at the last verse of our passage, and you see that Jesus was right. Verse 56, then all the disciples left him and fled. Even though we want to walk faithfully with Jesus, if that's our heart, even though we want to, our loyalty can be surprisingly frail in the face of temptation. That's what his followers, the the disciples, learned in this passage, the rather hard way. And it's something that we need to learn and recognize as well. Not because it's a fun subject, you know, or encouraging. It's not. It's not fun or encouraging at all. But it's true. It's true. And we need to think about it. We need to take it on board to understand the reality that none of us are immune from turning our back on God. From betraying our Savior. Abandoning Him. That's and an uncomfortable emphasis in this passage. And yet at the same time, none of us are beyond the reach of God's grace, which is also one of the emphases in our passage. And that's because while we are prone to abandon our Lord, Jesus was willingly abandoned and betrayed by his closest followers, In order to fulfill the will of his Father and make propitiation for our sin. So let's pray and look at this beautiful passage. Gracious God, this is your word, and that's the word that we want to hear. Uh, So, Lord, would you open our eyes before this text? Would you give us ears to hear your voice by your Spirit? And Lord, as we look into your word and we see perhaps some uncomfortable realities of our our hearts, would you lay them bare and at the same time build them back up through Christ? Thank you that we have a faithful Savior. So change us this morning as we look at your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if, if you... Don't still have it open. Go ahead and and turn in your Bibles to Matthew 26. Uh, The story that we're looking at this morning picks up directly where we left off a few weeks ago before our missions conference. We've been working through the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, in the previous scene, Jesus just finished celebrating what would become his last supper with his disciples, a Passover meal. And that meal, the Passover meal, had for centuries been... Uh, the definite had been, it had for centuries defined God's salvation in terms of the exodus from Egypt. And so you'll remember the story of Israel being led out of uh, Egypt and the slavery there through this sacrifice of the Passover lamb um, in place of the firstborn. And so that meal had for ages commemorated God's salvation in terms of that exodus. Jesus took that meal and reinterpreted it around himself since through his death and resurrection he would fulfill what the exodus and the Passover had been looking forward to all along. So the bread is no longer a sign of ancient Israel's affliction but of Christ's affliction for us. The cup is now a sign of the new covenant in Jesus's blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And so, the, the last supper became the Lord's Supper on that night, a meal that we continue to commemorate and will, in fact, celebrate together this morning. But during that final meal that Jesus was sharing with his closest followers, he also shared some very disturbing news. One of the twelve would soon betray him, would hand him over to uh, the authorities, And we know, because we've been following the story, that he's talking about Judas. Uh, Though the disciples at that time, the rest of them, didn't know who he's talking about, and they all got rather uh, anxious and quite self-defensive at the announcement. Judas knew, and he knew that Jesus knew that he knew. And so, at some point in the scene, Judas disappears. He, He leaves. Then after the supper as uh, Jesus and his followers head to the Mount of Olives, he shares with them some more shocking news. Not only will Jesus be betrayed by one of the 12, but the rest of them will stumble and fall because of him as well. The loyalty of every single one of Jesus' followers will be tested that evening, and none of them will pass the test. Verse 31, Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, "I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. but after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. That's incredibly discouraging news if if you think of you know the disciples and their hope that here is the one we've been waiting for all along the king, the promised king of Israel, the one who's going to to make right everything that's wrong in this world, who's going to deliver us from foreign oppressors, who's going to bring salvation from sin. And it's just bad news after bad news after bad news. And now he's telling them that they too are going to fall away. And, and when your closest friends leave you, who else is there? Think of the weight and the burden for Jesus as he says these words. And yet, it doesn't take him off guard, this fact. It doesn't take him off guard. It was even written beforehand in the Scriptures that this would happen. The prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament, looking forward to the day when God would save his people from their enemies and cleanse them from their sin and their idolatry, told of how God would test his children... And refine them through suffering. And the specific test that they would face is the fall of their king. Zechariah 13 verse 7. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. But it's through that test that God refines his people. Verse 9. Zechariah 13 9, And I will put this third into the fire this third of his people, and and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. And what's the result of that test? They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, these are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. So God is testing them to deepen their affection, their loyalty, their trust. The nature of that test is the fall of their king, and Jesus knows that the moment of that test has now come. And he knows that none of them will pass. But he also knows that his fall and their failure is not the end of the story. See, even though he talks about how they're going to let him down in the very same breath. He, t- he says in verse 32, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. See, There's more to the story coming after this. He's already looking forward to the resurrection. He's already looking forward to the fact that these very men who are about to hightail it will, will someday stand before kings and princes and testify to Jesus even in the face of death. But first, they're going to fail. And that's where we're at in the story. And that's the part Peter's stuck on. He doesn't quite hear the whole, you know, after I'm raised, we'll meet up again, and the story will continue. He gets stuck and rather personally offended by Jesus's words that they're going to fall away. And so, so his response in verse 33, Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. How's that for a little self-righteous bravado there? I mean, how awkward would it be to be the other disciple standing there while Peter kind of, you know, stands up and says, you know, they're all going to let you down, Jesus, but not me. Uh, Basically throws them under the bus to look good. As one author uh, summarizes, Peter's behavior fails in three ways. First, in his condescension toward the other disciples. Second, in his confidence in himself as an exception. And then third, in his contradiction to the Lord's own words. And his problem here is but one of three examples in our passage of how we fail to realize how fragile our loyalty to Jesus can be in the face of temptation. Peter is overconfident here. Even after Jesus puts him in his place and tells him, listen here, it's not you're going to deny me three times before you even hear the rooster crow and announce that the next day has dawned. Even after Jesus puts him in his place, he insists that he will remain faithful as do the other disciples. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. I mean, they've invested three years into following this guy. They're not going to cash it in tonight in the test. They're overconfident. And we can take that same attitude as well. I mean, we, uh, we see our friends struggling with a certain temptation. And we can think to ourselves, well, they might deal with that. but That'll never happen to me. I've learned my lesson on that one.
0: I know how to hold my
1: liquor. Not going to be a problem. I only have eyes for my spouse. It's not going to be a problem for me. I'll never let my kids get away with that. I mean, we, we genuinely want to follow Jesus, but we look to our own righteousness and our own ability and our own resolve. We get into the car and we drive through life without a seatbelt because we think, I know how to handle the wheel, I'll be fine. Others might mess up, I'm never going to stumble. And so when we're blindsided and, and struck out of nowhere by a temptation that we didn't see coming, we find ourselves unprepared to face it and remain faithful to the Father. Because we're depending not on God, but on ourselves. Overconfident. We see a second example of how fragile our loyalty uh, to Jesus can be in the next scene. As Jesus and his disciples move on now into the Garden of Gethsemane. Where Peter was overconfident before, now he and his companions are underconcerned. So look at verse 36 with me. Then Jesus went with them to the place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. You know, as we read those words, I think it's hard for us to imagine the, the real weight and raw emotion of what Jesus feels in this scene. Sometimes we have the idea that it was no big deal for Jesus to go to the cross. Uh, it was no big deal for him to bear the sin of the world. That, it, that was just his job. That's what he came to do. As if taking on himself all the evil in this fallen world and all his father's holy anger against that evil was no big thing. And yet you see in these verses the very real burden that Jesus feels here. What he was about to face was, was so horrific that he prays three times that if there's any other way To accomplish the plan and not go through that, Lord, please do it. Three times. This is the darkest hour of Jesus' life and ministry. It is the final test. Will he remain faithful to the Father? But unlike the test that he faced at the beginning of his ministry, when he was alone in the wilderness for 40 days back in Matthew 4, here Jesus asks his disciples, his friends, to come and be with him in the midst of that test. He looks to their companionship. And yet how do they respond? They fall asleep. Three times. They had one job. Watch and pray. Uphold your king in his darkest hour. Three times Jesus goes away to pray. Three times he comes back and finds them asleep. They are under-concerned. They are under-concerned. Jesus is pulling an all-nighter in prayer. And they cashed in early as if this test is no big deal, piece of cake. And so whereas they were self-righteous in the first scene, here they're more self-absorbed. They fail to appreciate the real gravity of what Jesus is facing. Their eyes are fixed on themselves. They fail to understand the real threat uh, of those who are on their way right now to arrest their king the emotional toil that Jesus faces as he prepares to endure God's wrath. They're under concern. And again, the the, the point of this passage is not for us to gawk at the insensitivity of the disciples, but to see ourselves in this story. No one's immune from turning their back on God. Just as we can put too much confidence in our own ability... To withstand temptation, so also we can underestimate the very real threat that sin is. It's by nature deceptive. It's insidious. It wants us to think that the test is no big deal. That fighting temptation to turn our back on God and, and to give ourselves to something other than Him, something against Him, even good things that we treat as ultimate things, replacements of god that 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 fighting the temptation to do that sin wants us to think that that's not hard that that's really easy that that you don't have to pay much attention to it that's an easy a holiness but it's not and if you've lived much life walking with christ you know full well it's not Our loyalty to Jesus can be surprisingly frail in the face of temptation. And the problem for many of us is not that we don't want to follow Jesus or that we don't want to honor him. There might be some of us who are wrestling with that, you know, is is Jesus who he says he is? Do I really want to give my life to him? Can't I just get the benefit with none of the cost of actually, you know, trusting and obeying? And you may be wrestling with that, and I encourage you to keep wrestling and asking who is this Jesus? What does he, what has he done? What does he call us to? But for many of us, it's not that we don't want to follow him. We do. Jesus summarizes the problem in verse 41. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We are not as strong as, as we think we are. We may want to follow Jesus, but our loyalty is surprisingly fragile. The flesh is weak. And so we cannot allow ourselves to be overconfident or underconcerned, or we will fail the test. We will be caught off guard, blindsided. Jesus tells his followers instead, watch and pray. That you may not enter into temptation. Watch, stay alert, don't fall asleep. And pray, trust God as you fight this fight. We'll talk more about that in a minute. When Jesus then wakes them up for the third time, uh, the scene changes again because his hour has finally come. His betrayer is at hand. Verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said, Friend. Do what you came to do. And then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Now, Peter, uh, perhaps with his promise to Jesus still ringing in his ears, you know, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you, he goes rogue and attacks one of the servants sent from the high priest, cuts off his ear. But even here, his bravado is misplaced. This is not what Jesus is looking for. Peter still doesn't get what Jesus has trying, been trying to help him and the disciples get for some time now. That his kingdom is not like other kingdoms. It will not be established with power and violence. A kingdom like that will not last. Those who take the sword will die by the sword. That's not how his kingdom is going to come. And moreover, it's not as though Jesus needed Peter to protect him in that moment either. He tells him in verse 53, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? You're missing the big picture, friend. It's not as though Jesus has all of a sudden lost control of the situation. That's what it feels like for the disciples. That this thing is just spiraling into chaos. And if you were to ask the crowds uh, that have come to arrest him who was in control, they would have shown you their swords and their clubs and said, what do you think? But it's not as though Jesus has lost control here. This is all part of the plan. It's all part of the great plan of redemption that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit covenanted together before creation to accomplish for our good and for their glory. It's part of the plan that was foretold long ago in Israel's scriptures. And Jesus points that out to both his disciples and then to the crowds. And he says to Peter, you know, I could call these 12 legions of angels down right now if I wanted, but, verse 54, how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? This isn't, spiraling out of control this is according to plan and then he says to the armed crowd in verses 55 to 56 have you come out against me as a robber or or a rebel with swords and clubs to capture me day after day i sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me and you need to ask the question why not that would have been a lot easier why is it only now that they're coming and arresting him Because it wasn't Jesus' time until now. They're not really in control. Jesus is in control. He continues in verse 56. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Scriptures like Isaiah 53, 12. that, That Jesus would be numbered with the transgressors. He would be counted a rebel and insurrectionist. And treated as such. Or scriptures like Zechariah 13, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Verse 56 concludes that that's exactly what happens here, what Jesus said would happen. Then all the disciples left him and fled. And so in this passage, we see that Jesus was right. They all stumbled and fell on account of him. What started as a self-righteous bravado and and kind of slipped into a a self-absorbed indifference came crashing down in crude self-preservation. It was simply too dangerous to stick around and be associated with Jesus. They fled. We'll see next Sunday the full weight of Peter's fall in his triple denial before the rooster crows. And yet there's a reason that Matthew draws so much attention to the disciples' failure. Not to shame them, but first to warn us not to presume upon our own strength and resolve in the face of temptation, or underestimate the craftiness of of sin. But even more than that, Matthew is drawing out this contrast between Jesus and his disciples to highlight that whereas the disciples fail the test, Jesus is the one who passes it. That's what Matthew wants us to see here. None of us are immune from turning our back on God. And yet none of us are beyond the reach of God's grace because Jesus passes the test for us. We've got to see that. He was willingly abandoned and betrayed by his closest followers in order to fulfill the will of his father and make propitiation for our sins. There's nothing in this story he doesn't do willingly of his own accord. There's nothing in this story he does not do in faithfulness and obedience and love for his father or love for his people. Nobody forces Jesus to go with these troops. They might look and feel like they're strong. But I always find it interesting that Paul's words in Romans 5, 6, that while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Here's the crowd flexing their muscles. In reality, they're weak. We're all weak. Jesus is the one in control. He was willing to be arrested because he was willing to drink the cup. Look back at verse 39 again. In the precise words of Jesus' prayer. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I want us to notice two things in Jesus' prayer. First is his willingness. There's no bravado in his voice. There's certainly no cold indifference to the situation. He knows full well what this cup means and the horrific effect it's going to have on the one who drinks it. But his faithfulness to his father is greater than his desire for self-preservation. In contrast to the disciples and to us, whose whose spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak, listen to, to how Jesus lands that prayer. Not as I will, but as you will. He is a willing servant and substitute. He will be faithful to the plan and to God's purposes, whatever the cost, he will pass the test. It's the first thing about his prayer, his willingness. The second thing is to think about the cup. What is Jesus talking about when he makes that request that the cup might pass? I mean, clearly he's talking about his crucifixion, which is just now hours away in the story. But what is he saying about his crucifixion? Why does he describe it as a cup? In the Old Testament, the cup is not merely a metaphor for suffering and death, but for God's wrath against sin. Isaiah 51 speaks of Israel's exile of having, quote, drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. When God promises to judge the sin of all nations in Jeremiah 25, he says to his prophet, Take from my hand. The cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. The cup is a picture of the wrath of God against sin. And God's wrath is—it's His holy anger against everything that is evil, everything that is wrong with His fallen world, every offense we commit against Him, big or small. Every way that we say to God, I don't really want you. I don't really need you. I don't love you. I don't care what you've planned or what your word says. My kingdom come. My will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's this heart of rebellion against God. And it shows up in small ways and in in big ways. But it shows up in every human heart. And And it is an offense against God's rule and against God's person. And he has righteous, holy anger in the face of that sin that must be poured out. That wrath, that's what was in the cup. And you think about Jesus's prayer in the garden. Lord. Lord. If there's any other way to finish the plan and not drink that cup, let it pass. You know why he was so moved. The the fear, the, the, the horror of what he knew he must do. Charles Spurgeon describes it like this. The whole of the punishment of his people was distilled into one cup. No mere mortal lip might give it so much as a solitary sip. When Jesus put it to his own lips, it was so bitter, he well-nigh spurned it. Let this cup pass from me. But his love for his people was so strong, and we might add, his commitment to the Father's will was so steadfast that he took the cup in both his hands And at one tremendous draft of love, he drank damnation dry. He drank damnation dry, willingly, in love for you and for me. He did it as our representative, the one who passed the test for us who fail. The author of Hebrews describes it this way. in Hebrews 2.17 Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus had to become like us. Fully God, but he had to become fully human at the same time to be our representative. So that as our great high priest, he could make propitiation for our sins. And that's a big word that we don't use in daily conversation necessarily. But it simply means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath against sin. A sacrifice that satisfies his holy anger. That exhausts it such that there's no wrath left for those who are covered by that sacrifice. Jesus gave his life as a sin bearing offering, such that if you trust in him as your savior and king, you receive grace from God instead of wrath. You're given something wonderful forgiveness, new life, relationship with God, when in fact you actually deserve something terrible his holy anger and judgment. That's grace. There is no wrath, no condemnation, no judgment, no hell left for those who are united with Christ by faith. That is grace. He drank the cup dry. And notice in the next verse in Hebrews 2, the result of him having done this for us. For because he himself has suffered when tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. So not only does Jesus do everything necessary to rescue us from sin, he's also with us in our own battle against sin. He doesn't leave us to ourselves. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we know that in our bones. But we have in Jesus a living Savior. Who has conquered death, a, a great high priest who has suffered when tempted, so that he's able to help those, able to help us face our temptation. Think about that for a minute. Jesus knows what you're going through. I'm not sure how often we believe that, but. Whatever the temptation it is, whatever it is in your heart that is just kind of drawing your gaze off of Christ and elsewhere, whether it's something you're doing or something somebody else is doing to you that, that moves you to doubt the love of God or to, to, want to, to want to move away from him, Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. There is no temptation in your life that he cannot identify with and that he did not conquer on your behalf. Hebrews four fifteen to 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because he has passed the test for us, he is able to help us when we face it as well. None of us are immune from turning our back on God. Yet none of us are beyond the reach of his grace. So what do we do? Watch and pray. Watch and pray. Be aware of the weakness of your flesh and the craftiness of sin. Don't be overconfident or underconcerned in the face of temptations that you're caught off guard. And Don't give in to self-preservation when following Jesus costs you everything. Stay awake. Know the cost. Watch and pray. Depend on Jesus. Ask God for help. Every day, every morning, in the moment of temptation, cry out to God help me keep my eyes and my heart fixed on you. Remind me what is true. Convince me of what is good. Comfort my heart. Keep me near your cross. Help me love you more than I love sin. Give me grace and mercy in my time of need. Watch and pray. This morning as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, I want to give us time to do just that. To watch and pray. To ask God to search our hearts, to expose in us, any sin or weakness. None of us are immune. But then also to ask God to comfort our hearts with the truth of his gospel. To help us understand the joyful and liberating reality that Christ drank damnation dry. That that his spirit would speak that peace into our hearts. If he is our King. None of us are beyond the reach of God's grace, and so I'm going to give us time just to pray quietly um, by yourself as we prepare our hearts for this table. And then when I then I'll close our time in prayer. Gracious Father, we confess that we have failed the test. Lord, we confess that we have overestimated our own righteousness we have looked to our own strength our own good works and we've not depended on Christ we confess that we've underestimated the very real enemy that sin poses and we have been caught unprepared Lord we confess that there are times when when our life our dreams, our agenda is threatened that we run in self-preservation instead of staying near your cross. And Lord, we recognize that none of that comes as a surprise to you. You know all things. And yet, we praise you because amid our sin and failure, you love us and you gave your son for us. Lord, how absolutely marvelous and incredible and amazing is your love for us. May we never take that for granted, God. Would you fill our hearts with the truth of your grace? And would you encourage us daily as we seek to walk with you, Lord? Would you keep our eyes fixed on Jesus? Would you keep us depending on your spirit? Thank you that you've not left us alone but that you are with us and that you are for us through Christ. We give you praise and we ask your continued presence with us, God. In Jesus' name, amen.